my uh, dry date is October the 19th of 1982. And I'm very grateful to God for getting me sober then and keeping me sober. So we're going to start this morning with uh, uh, the set-aside prayer. And uh, so if you'll, uh, if you'll repeat this after me. God, please set aside everything I think I know. About myself, the 12 steps, this book, the meetings, my disease, and you, God, and my physical powerlessness over alcohol once I take a drink. So I may have an open mind and a new experience with all of these things. Please let me see the truth. Heavenly Father, upon awaking this morning, we ask that you divorce our thinking from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Help us to think about the 24 hours ahead and to consider our plans for the day. And we can trust and rely on that as a result of this prayer that our thinking will be along lines that we can trust. Help us, Father, if we have to make any decisions today to ask you for strength and for inspiration or a decision and to relax and to take it easy. Father, we thank you for bringing us together as a spiritual body this morning. We ask that you bless all of our family and friends and people who could not be here, that you guide and protect us all as we go throughout this day. Father, as we came together last night as a spiritual body, we can trust and rely on the promise that we're two or more gathered in your name that you will be here and that we are here for a new experience. We ask that you help us be here during this weekend, during this moment, and during this time. We begin to explore, Father, a lot of myths that perhaps we've all heard since we've been around this program. And we went into this book and we were told that the main purpose of this book is to develop a relationship with you, to have a desire to seek you, and if we're willing to do that, that you'll reveal yourself to us. And we begin to explore perhaps a lot of belief systems that have come to us in the time that we've been in this program. And we tried to take a look at the idea that perhaps we need to continually be having a new experience with you, Father, at all times. We took a look at the circle and the triangle and the circle representing wholeness. We begin to see the three legacies of recovery and unity and service to treat our threefold illness of body, mind, and spirit. We were shown how this book breaks down, Father, and you showed us how so much of this book is devoted to step one, the foundation, what is wrong with us. Then we took a look at some of the general information, Father, about this program, brought to the idea, Father, that if those who come to this program and really try, 50% of us can get sober and stay that way. We tried to stay open-minded, Father, to a lot of things and to sit, to go down inside, Father, and to embrace the attitude on page 55, which is that if we lay aside prejudice, think honestly, and search deep within ourselves, with this attitude we cannot fail, because the belief of our consciousness is sure to come to us. Today, Father, as we experience this day, help us to not run from anything. Help us to get moved past the idea that if it feels good, it's good. That irregardless of what's going on within us, we ask that you come and be with us and you help us experience the truth. Amen. 
I'm Joe. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> so, for lack of a better way, we break the we break the book into sections, and we look at a section at a time. Especially with the first step, because the first step in its entirety can be for a new person or an old person or someone who's been around for a while, it can be a little overwhelming. Because you'll be trying to look at the craving and your, and your, and your ego will take you to, well, what about, what, what about the obsession? You're looking at the obsession you'll start thinking about the unmanageability. And it's, 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 a, it's a little easier with prayer, with the prayer, to stay focused on one part of the first step at a time. Mark made a very important comment in the review, in the prayer that he took us through as far as a belief system that I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous and he brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's a belief system that if it's not smashed, and I I would probably say it needs to be smashed over and over and over like a lot of them, uh, I'll have a really hard time with this, with this work in this, in this book. And the belief system goes like this. If it's good, it feels good. And if it's bad, it feels bad. And you hear people, they'll say, if it's God's will, it feels good. Well, they've obviously never written inventory the way it's outlined in the big book or made any amends, right? Because uh, God's will usually takes me to a place where I feel good, but in between there, when I'm getting free of my delusion, my old ideas, my attachments, the things that I'm hooked into, it's usually pretty painful. Like I said last night, they tell you the truth will set you free, but when you're new, they hardly ever tell you. Just before it sets you free, it'll really piss you off, right? And uh, that's been my experience. Uh, God's will does not always feel good before I get to it. Uh, between this stuff that I've set up, and this stuff that he has for me, sometimes it's not comfortable. And a man said to me one time, didn't you do some stuff for about 18 years that felt really good, that damn near killed you? And haven't you done some stuff in the last 14 years that doesn't always feel good, that has saved your life? So you have to get past this idea that anything that starts to make you uncomfortable is bad, and anything, because see, you know, denial, denial and delusion are sometimes really comfortable. And being brought out of that denial and out of that delusion into truth is not always comfortable. So I ask that what I believe about what's good and bad and what feels right and what feels wrong be put aside that I may come through my comfort zone into the tension. My friend always says, you cannot go to the second step in a good mood. You can't go to the second step in a good mood. Because if everything's all right at the end of the first step, why why would you need to go on? If the first step, if being powerless over alcohol and your life being unmanageable one more day is acceptable to anybody in this room when we finish step one, why would you need God? I go to God over and over and over again because being powerless over alcohol and an unmanageable life becomes absolutely unacceptable. I also wanted to talk for a minute about, of all the people we've ever seen do this work, and men and women that we know that have been doing this work a lot longer than we have, there's three kinds of people that approach this work. 
and you'll find a little bit of all three within yourself, as I do. The first type we're going to call the bigot. And the bigot, when posed with a question, remember we talked last night, you cannot start this process with an answer. If you start this process with an answer, you, you won't end up with anything you didn't have when you started. You'll have the same answer when you, when you finish as when you started. This process must start with a question. We looked at several very important questions that one needs to consider before doing this work. Do you want to live? Do you want to quit drinking? Are you willing to go to any length? Are you willing to bet your life on the instructions contained in this book? And can you keep yourself sober? If I can keep myself sober, why would I need to go past, why would I need to do any of this? There's another question we're now faced with. Having, having faced these, each in our own way, in prayer, set aside what I think I know. See, yesterday my knowledge was a great asset. Now I've decided to go for a new experience and I start this prayer. Now my knowledge is my greatest liability between me and a new experience. Now I think my knowledge and my ego's attachment to it. We have a friend that describes what the ego can do with a valid experience with God. See, everybody in this room, whether it's, and there's a man here this morning with one day, right? Whether it's one day or 35 years, everyone in this room, if you're alcoholic or Al-Anon or have any of these diseases, every one of us has experienced God, whether you know it or not. Now, what can the ego do with a valid experience with God? And I love the way he describes it. So let's say you could, you could see it as a, as a, you could see your uh, a valid experience with God as a um, like a ball of experience all right, right out here in front of you. And he says what the ego can do with a valid experience with God is attach itself to it, convince you that you made it happen, suck all the life out of it, and by the time your ego's had its hands on it for a while, all you're left with is the explanation of the experience, and it then becomes the very noose around your neck for your next experience. A valid experience with God becomes the very stuff that I need to get free of for a new experience past here. And that includes the knowledge. All the knowledge that I currently have up to this point, if if I want to stay where I'm at, if anybody in this room wants to stay where they're at and uh, uh, doesn't want any more, any more God, any more freedom, any more peace, any more existence beyond where you are, then please hold on to the knowledge that you currently have. But if each of us in our own way, I, I don't think anybody would be here, especially by the time we're done with step one, there will not be many spectators left <laughs> that are here for information or knowledge to take back where they, where they come from so they can sound better. This will be about experience, and this will be about a combined experience and individual experiences. There will be a group experience with step one. Those of you that have been around for a while, and you're in tune with energy in a group, in a room, feel the shift from when we finish step one, probably just before lunch. It'll, it'll feel, it'll feel heavy, it'll feel like you're drained, it'll feel like, my God. And then internally you'll have your own first step. But there'll be a first step in the group too, and then feel it as we move into step two and three after lunch, and you'll feel it pick up. You'll literally feel the kind of hope that an alcoholic needs to feel. Not that false hope we were talking about last night. 
What do I mean by false hope? Any hope that an alcoholic has grounded in something they can do about any problem or whether they stay sober or not is false hope. But the real hope that works for an alcoholic is when your your hope is grounded in absolute hopelessness. And from that hopelessness comes the real kind of hope that can work for an alcoholic. So there's these three kinds of people that approach the first, that approach the 12 steps. There's the bigot. Now, what does the bigot look like? The bigot says he knows. He either knows he is or he knows that he isn't alcoholic. But he knows. He's on, imagine this scale from zero to a hundred. He either knows that he is and ain't nobody going to tell him nothing. Or he knows that he isn't and ain't nobody going to tell him nothing. It doesn't matter. He's stuck. He's stuck on one end of the scale or the other. And the bigot, you know what the bigot suffers from? The bigot suffers from contempt prior to investigation. Contempt without any consideration. He just knows. Now, I have a bit of that in me. There are certain things I know, right? What am I going to do? I'm going to pray to get past what I think I know, taken to a place on that scale where I am in the middle, wondering, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. i got to get free of this bigoted ideas, this bigoted belief system that I have where I either know I am or I know I'm not. Because the basic question that we have to approach this morning is, why am I powerless over alcohol? And why is my life unmanageable? Then there's the hardest man in AA to work with. Mark always says it's much easier to work with an atheist than a believer, right? Because believers believe they believe. And this, this person will call the pious man. Now, the pious man doesn't just know that he is or he isn't. The pious man, he believes that he is. And he usually uses God to justify it. He either believes he is or he believes he isn't. He's stuck just like the bigot. Now, the pious man is not is not stuck by contempt. You know what the pious man is stuck by? Acceptance. He's the nodder and the shaker. He's the guy, when you're in a bar sitting between a Democrat and a Republican, you're in big trouble, right? Right? You're in a bar between two women that are buying the drinks. You can usually tell the pious man by the last person or the last seminar or the last workshop that he went to. He just accepts everything without any consideration. This week he accepts this. This week he accepts this. Next week it's this. Then it's this. And he's stuck with acceptance. Pious acceptance. How am I going to get past that? I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray to be taken to a place where I'm in the middle of the question. To be in the middle of any question you come up against is called open-mindedness. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. And just like I said last night, those of you that have been around for a while, you will not get much anymore from looking at why you're alcoholic. You will get a lot, and what needs to come to the surface will show itself when you look at maybe you're not. And watch the stuff that comes to the surface of your consciousness when you look at the other side of the question. We're going to look today, think of a question as a coin. coin has two sides. And then there's the third type of person that I would like to be taken to, and that's the man of consideration. By prayer and the grace of God, with every question, you're taken to the middle of the question where you can look at it from both sides. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. I'm not sure I know. I'm not sure I don't know. I'm even willing to question my belief to be taken past the doubts that I have about it to the other side of it 
get free of the neg negative attachments to it and come out on the other side of it with a stronger first step. I'm only going to come on the other side with a stronger first step if I'm willing to face the current wall that blocks me from having a new first step and go through that wall. How many times can you keep on going around the wall, over the wall, under the wall, then the wall is going to be there next time. It's going to be the same wall. To go through the wall, you must come into the middle of the question, experience the tension, sit in the middle of the tension, don't avoid it, don't shut it off, and be popped through the tension onto the other side of every question with the first step. And that's the first thing we'd like to share with you about this next section, section two. We're going to look at just your body. The body of an alcoholic after alcohol and or drugs are ingested into the body. This is about the body. We're going to take the first step in three parts. It's a three-part disease. We're going to take the first step based on this statement. Page 64. Last paragraph. Third line. We have not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. And when the spiritual malady is overcome, we'll straighten out mentally and physically. So, imagine the first step. If somebody wants to come up and write it here on a blank page, up here on the board, that's fine. And I'd like you to write, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash, that our lives have become unmanageable. Let's go up to the dash and cross everything else off. So let's take, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, and break it in half. Body and mind. We're going to look at physical and mental powerlessness, and then the unmanageability, we're going to look at the spirit. So with this section, we're only going to look at why am I powerless over alcohol physically, once I take a drink, we're going to use from the doctor's opinion to the top two lines on page 23, and there is a solution. We will not find any more about the physical craving past the top two lines on 23. So where do I want you to mark to stop? At the top of 23, you'll see a line that says, the experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Stop. Do not go any further yourself or with anybody you work with until they are clear on the physical craving, because there's nothing more in the book that you can use. We're going to break this section into four parts. A, the doctor's opinion. The greatest thing I can share with you with this book, the greatest thing I can share with you with the doctor's opinion, is to turn every statement that he makes into a question. And that chapter will no longer be a doctor's opinion. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be truth about you and alcohol once it goes into your body. The doctor's opinion is not just a doctor's opinion for me anymore. And I, and I found that experience when somebody gave me the greatest tool you could use with the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Somebody asked me once if I was in the New York airport and I was flying to L.A. and I met a guy flying to London and we had about one minute, what would I say to that man in one minute that would be the most important thing that I've ever found out about this big book? If I could hand him a big book, 
and he's on his way to get on a plane to London, what would I say? I would say, take this big book, go home, turn every statement the book makes into a question, answer the question, and when you get to a direction, do the direction before you go on to the next one. And you can have the experience outlined in that book. And that's what we were taught to do with the doctor's opinion. Turn every statement into a question. He's going to show us how to do that. With Bill's story, we're going to break it in two parts. His drunkalogue, page 1 through 8, and his sobriety, page 9 to 16. How can you use page 1 through 8? You can use page 1 through 8 at three different times to look at three different things. The first time after you've gone through the doctor's opinion and turned statements into questions, and I like to mark those so I can then come back and consider them in prayer. Mark the questions. Mark the statements in the doctor's opinion that you can turn into questions. We'll give you some examples. you find your own, too. With that perception, I'm now looking at the physical craving. Go through the first eight pages of Bill's story, marking what you can relate to, where he describes what happens when he takes a drink, how he thought, how he felt, how he drank, in relationship to what you've seen and begun to question about the physical craving. Then go through page one through eight in Bill's story when you're looking at the mental obsession. The next section we're going to talk about this morning. Then go, page, go through page one through eight in Bill's story when you're looking at the spiritual malady or the unmanageability. But for now, we're going to look at how to use page one through eight after looking at the doctor's opinion. What about page nine to sixteen? Well, that's where Bill gets sober, and you'll find a great outline of what's going to be asked for you to recover in the rest of the process. So use page 1 through 8 as a guide to what it's going to mean to go to any length. And when you go, pay, when you go through page 9 to 16 in Bill's story, mark anything you feel resistant to or unwilling to do that Bill did to recover. Mark it. There's certain lines that will pull on your ego. There's a line that gets me every time my ego has rebuilt itself and it's time for me to do the work again. In page 9 to 16, it always pulls on me. And it's where he says, to admit that, that of yourself you're nothing and that without God you're lost. And you know if you're honest and you mark the stuff in 9 to 16 that you feel resistant to or unwilling to do, you know what it becomes? It becomes a barometer as to when you're going to be done with step 1. Because I'll tell you what, when you're done with step 1, any resistance that you marked in 9 to 16 will be gone. And it will be a great barometer for you, the person doing the work, and for the person taking you through the work as to when that person's done with step one. So mark that stuff in 9 to 16. And then 17 to 23, and there is a solution. Just continue to turn statements into questions. There's a, a quote from... Uh... Thomas Merton, I, I've always loved that, sums up a, a lot of what Joe was saying. It goes like this. Those who think they know from the beginning will, in fact, never come to know anything. So I want to start a set of spiritual exercises by asking God to lay aside what I think I know, and I want to start with the right question. You know, the other thing I love about the big book, and when, when, when we look at step one, is the big book is really not interested in Anything other than what happens to me when I take a drink physically. It's not interested in my sex, my race. It's not interested in my education. It's not interested in any of that stuff. It's not interested in, uh, I still haven't figured out this. I want to talk about my issues. I, I still haven't figured out what the hell that means, but, uh, maybe this weekend someone can help me with that. 
because if you're like me, you're going to find out page 52 sums up every topic I've ever heard brought up in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they all point back to one thing, lack of power, things I can't do anything about. <clears throat> all the things that my ego wants to use to make me different than you uh, all get skimmed away. And so when we begin to go into the doctor's opinion, we're just looking at one thing and one thing only, and that is that what happens to me once I take a drink of alcohol? That's all we're looking at. Nothing else. Period. What happens to me when I take a drink of alcohol? Uh, the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silkworth, uh, as far as I know, the only change in the big book uh, in the uh, in the area where it talks about recovery had to do from the... Uh, those of you who have seen a first edition big book know that the doctor's opinion is page one. So the book's really 174 pages. In the second edition... There was a change made, and what they did is they took the doctor's opinion and put it into Roman numerals, and they started with Bill's story as page one. Now, that really, if, if knowing how the concepts works, that shouldn't have happened because no changes in this book are ever supposed to have been made without, I think, a two-thirds vote of all the members of AA, so I don't think we ever have to worry about that happening. Hell, you can't get three drunks to agree on something, let alone two-thirds of all the members. But the sad news about that is there's a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who've never read the doctor's opinion because it's not page one. And it's very important. And Dr. Silkworth, uh, there's a great biography on him, but over 19 years he treated 51,000 alcoholics and drug addicts. He has a hell of a lot of experience with us. The interesting thing about him, too, of course, is he's not an alcoholic. Isn't that interesting? We've gotten so much of this book from uh, men of uh, medicine and science and religion, and then we want to put down men of medicine, science, and religion, which is where it all came from. So, do so the doctor's opinion has always been extremely important to me. And I really first ran to the doctor's opinion when I was three years into this program. Now, I want to give you some other tools that will be helpful as you go through the book. One is that, that we are so selfish and self-centered that when we see the word we, we think you're talking about someone else. So when you read the book, if you'll put your name in or use the word I, this book will come alive for you. Now, again, I was introduced to that tool when I was three years dry. It's the difference between being dry and sober based on my experience. And when I went through the book, I mean, this book really began to speak to me when I put my name in there. And I used, the, used my name Mark or I used the term I. The book got alive for me. And so what we're going to do as we go through the doctor's opinion, we're trying to look at one thing. Why am I powerless over alcohol physically after I take the first drink? See, if you're a real alcoholic, the relapse ends when you take a drink. It doesn't begin then. I work at a, I told you at a treatment center, a guy that does a thing on relapse prevention, he came to me one day and he said, I'd like to, I'd like to have your opinion on relapse prevention. I said, no, you don't. He said, yeah, I would. I'd like to have your opinion on what I do. I said, no, you don't. I said, we've had a good relationship up to now. I'd like to keep it that way. And he said, yeah, I really would. I said, okay. I said, if there's anything I can do to prevent my next relapse, then I'm not an alcoholic. What the hell am I doing here? You know, they do a thing about triggers. I said, doing breathing is a trigger for me. So anyhow, that's what we're going to look at. Why am I powerless over alcohol once I take the first drink? The relapse ends when you take the first drink if you're a real alcoholic, and here's why. If I'm a real alcoholic physically once it's in my body, and we look at what it tells me in the doctor's opinion, here's my truth. 
if I take the drink, I don't have a clue what the hell is going to happen to me. So the relapse doesn't start when I take the drink. It ends when I take the drink. But here's the first thing we got to look at. This is what joins me at the hip with all you real alcoholics in this room, is what the hell happens to Mark when he takes a drink. What happens? To look at this, really go back into your drinking. I took my first drink of alcohol that I can recall when I was 16. And I drank till I was 36 when God struck me sober. I didn't even ask to get sober. I asked for help. Getting sober was the least of my in my mind. That's so I have a 20-year history with alcohol when I'm going to sit and look at this portion of the book. The, the crazy thing to me is there's people sitting in rooms of AA that want to be alcoholics. My God, what, what a tragedy. An illness that, that is so fatal in nature. And they want to sit in these rooms and belong in these rooms. you got to find out. So go back in to the first time you took a drink right after the last time. We're going to look at one thing. What happens to me when I take a drink? Now, again, what we're going to do as you go through the doctor's opinion and is you're going to turn statements into questions. And you can do far, far more if you get that workbook that uh, we're talking about. All that is is we've taken statements out of the big book and turned them into questions and put that on paper. But there's far more than what's even on the paper. So as you go through this, that's what you'll do. And you'll start asking yourself, is this me? For example, it starts out in the doctor's opinion. He says, we of AA believe the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So the question is, am I interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book? Do I believe convincing testimony can come from doctors who have experience with the suffering of alcoholics and have witnessed our return to health? goes on to talk about, am I an alcoholic of the type I've come to regard as hopeless? That's always a great question. The definition of hopeless, want to quit but can't. You know, the, the, the alcoholic mind is amazing. So many of us, including myself, when I come here, my idea of a drunk was somebody down under a bridge, right? Well, that's only about 2% of the alcoholics. That's what I thought was hopeless. Hopeless by, by definition, somebody who wants to quit but can't. So I go back into my experience and I begin to look at that. So anyhow, if you turn over to page XXIV, talks about the, uh, you have an introductory letter from Dr. Silkworth, and he goes on to say, the physician who our request gave us this letter, he's been kind enough to enlarge upon his views and other statements which follows. In this statement, he confirms what I, who have suffered alcoholic torture, must believe. It's one of the many musts in this book. Do I believe that my body is quite as abnormal as my mind? And I begin to work with these questions. Book goes on to say it doesn't satisfy us to be told we could not control our drinking because we were maladjusted to life. We're in full flight from reality. We're outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent. So I ask myself, was this true to some extent with me? But it introduces me the idea that my body was sickened as well. In my belief, is any picture of my drinking which leaves out this physical factor feel incomplete? Doctor's theory that I may have an allergy to alcohol interests me. So I look up the word allergy. It's a condition of unusual sensitivity to a substance, which in like amounts does not affect others and is characterized by systematic disorders. I drink, I break out in an urge to keep drinking no matter what I mentally want to do. And so I begin to look at this. 
There's a statement in there which has been so helpful to me. It talks about as an egg problem drinker, this explanation maybe about this allergy begins to make good sense to me. It explains many things for which I could not otherwise account. And when I'm working with people, I stop there and I, I say to them, let's go back and do your drinking. And I take a couple of my own examples of times where I took a drink and I had to be somewhere and I couldn't get there. And I'm telling you, I don't know about the rest of you, but I was very confused because I had that happen to me many times. A lot of it produced a lot of guilt in me, a lot of remorse. I'm in Anchorage, Alaska. It's 1978. My grandmother dies. I have three days to get from Anchorage to Des Moines, Iowa. They had airplanes then, so I had plenty of time. And I get on the airplane in Anchorage, Alaska, and I take a drink, and six days later I wake up in St. Louis, Missouri. I didn't want to be in St. Louis, Missouri. I really needed to be at that funeral, and I wanted to be at the funeral, and it was right that I'd be at the funeral, but I wasn't at the funeral. And I could never understand that. And there were a whole bunch of people real pissed at me because I wasn't at that funeral. And that kind of stuff happened to me hundreds of times. Some of you can probably relate to this one, too. And that is that I was living with a woman in, in Denver, Colorado, and uh, she uh, she had a young child, and I was going to go to the store and get some milk, so I went to Bennigan's. I was going to have a drink. And then see if you can remember this. You you wake up, and the first thing that, that you become aware of is perhaps you haven't been in this room before ever. And then you hear this breathing, and you look over, and you realize you've never met this person before, never seen this person before. So you, as quietly as you can, get out of the bed, and you walk, and you look out this window, and you realize you've never seen this landscape before. And then you kind of look at a kitchen table, and there's an address, and this address says that you're in uh, you're in Wyoming, which is 700 miles from where you started eight days ago. And you don't have a damn clue how you got there. And so I had to begin to look at the idea that, that maybe the reason all that stuff happened in me, maybe it's because I had this allergy to alcohol. And maybe that when I take so much as one drink, that this allergy begins to manifest itself in me. Maybe what's going to happen to me is that I'm going to keep drinking to satisfy what the book is going to talk about, a phenomenon called craving. And, I, and this explanation for me has gave me a tremendous sense of relief because it explained the numerous times that that kind of experience began to happen to me. So those are some of the things that you're going to sit and look at in the doctor's opinion. And you go on a little bit further. When the doctor begins to write some more, turn over to page XXVI. This paragraph that says, we believe, so suggest a few years ago, the action of alcohol on a chronic alcoholic is a manifestation of allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs, never occurs in an average tempered drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they could not break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up and then become astonishing difficult to solve. Give me a volunteer here in the front row. What's your name? Randy. <laughs> Let me show you how to go back through and turn statements into questions, and we'll, we'll have Randy give us some responses. So I start out and it reads like this. Do I now, do I believe the reaction of alcohol in me could be like an allergy? And that the phenomena of craving for me is limited to me and does not occur in average tempered drinkers. So here's the questions for Randy. Randy, did you form the habit of drinking and found you could not break it? Did you lose your self-confidence, your ability to quit 
quit drinking to control it? Did you lose your reliance upon things human? Did your problems pile up in you? Did they become difficult to solve? The reason she's answering yes to all that is I have a strong suspicion that when she takes a drink of alcohol, she has a physical allergy. Now, my mother is now uh, 82 years old, so she has about, she took her first drink, she said, somewhere when she was around 18 or 19, and Joe kind of introduced me to this idea, but my mother's a great one to run these questions by, because she has a 62-year history with alcohol. Now, if I ask my mother those questions, she looks at me like they're the most stupid questions in the world. Like if I say to my mother, Mom, in your 62 years of experience with alcohol, when you take a drink, you have power, choice, and control over how much you drink? She'd say, why do you ask me these dumb questions? <laughs> now, why would she give me that kind of response? She, my mother would give me a whole different response than what Randy gave me. wonder why that is. wonder what's different about my mom. Maybe she doesn't have this thing called allergy, and this is where I start to get into this, and I begin to look at this idea. <clears throat> Book goes on to say, frothy, and I'll ask Randy this. Randy, did frothy emotion appeal ever work? Now, th that might mean their frothy emotional appeal, the judge yelling at you, the wife crying, the mother begging. That also might mean your own frothy emotional appeal in the morning. Guilt, remorse, God, I feel bad, wasn't that terrible? And then at 5 o'clock the same day, you're drunk again. Frothy? Uh, frivolous, empty, and unsubstantiated. No. Mm -hmm. That word. You know, it goes on to say, and I think Joe and I have been talking this, do I believe the message which can interest and hold Randy must have depth and weight? Just don't drink and go to meetings. It doesn't have much depth and weight to it. You got a poor son of a bitch that's been vibrating for years. Keep coming back. You know the one that used to really confuse me? If you don't take the first drink, you won't get drunk. Oh, well, thanks. Gee, now that I know. <laughs> That's like the guy that goes into a bar, he orders a shot of whiskey and a glass of beer. But he leaves the shot and he drinks the beer. And he orders another shot of whiskey and another glass of beer and he drinks them both. And he does this all night long, and at the end of the night, the bartender says, I'm really wondering why you left that shot of whiskey. He said, well, some people in Alcoholics Anonymous told me if I didn't take the first drink, I wouldn't get drunk. <laughs> Bottom of this page. And I love this paragraph. I'm going to use Randy's name since she's been such a great volunteer. Randy drinks essentially because she likes the effect produced by alcohol. Did this effect become so injurious, Randy, that after time you couldn't differentiate the true from the false or the right from the wrong? That's a good example. You cannot differentiate between what it's doing for you and what it's doing to you. And what it's doing for you outweighs anything that it's doing to you. Let me ask this. How many of you in here think that alcohol is your problem? Great. Now, Randy, is, did your alcoholic life seem the only normal one for you? 
Now, the book goes on to say that Randy is restless, irritable, and discontented, and highlight those three words, because they're three words that will describe the symptoms of a spiritual malady. Restless, Randy's uneasy. A bunch of you are sitting here with your legs going up and down. You know, I was three years sore. I had a spiritual awakening at three years. My legs stopped bouncing the table. That comes from an internal state of consciousness. But I'm restless, irritable, meaning I'm easily annoyed and discontented and never satisfied. Unless Randy can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which Randy sees others taking with impunity, meaning they can control it. After Randy gives in to the desire again, as she would so often do, so she's taken the drink, the allergy manifests, the phenomena craving develops. Randy, did you pass through the well-known stages of a spree of merging remorseful with a firm resolution never to drink again? And it goes on to say, Randy, did you repeat this over and over? Now here's what it says. Unless Randy, unless I can experience an entire psychic change, change of mind, there's very little hope of my recovery. So I begin to turn statements into questions, and this paragraph really, really begins to come alive for me, because experientially, this is me. This is me right here. Then on the, it says, then on the other hand, strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change, a change in mind, has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, she despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds herself easily able to control her desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being she's going to have to follow a few simple rules for a program of suggestion. To look at the craving, I used to go to these places because I had a good Blue Cross Blue Shield card. I used to go to some of you. <laughs> some of you use your American Express card to go on vacation once a year for a week or two. I used to go to treatment on a regular basis because I had a great insurance card, and it was good once a year for 30 days. So I went, you know, as often as I possibly could between the age of 18 and 24 till I gave up on treatment, and um, then I became a therapist in one. And that's really the only thing left to do when you haven't found the answer to that question that you've been living with since before you ever took a drink. And the question that I was living with, I'm talking 10 years old in my parents' backyard, dreaming, daydreaming that a spaceship was going to land and a little green man was going to get out, and he was going to say, you weren't born here on this planet. We brought you here as a teeny baby. This has been a test, and uh, you failed. And uh, we're, we're taking you back home. And uh, that spaceship never landed, and uh, that question remained in my consciousness, and I started drinking, and the spaceship landed, and I went home. And that question, you know, when, you're, when your parents... When your parents' statement that used to confuse you turns into the same question that you have, and they quit saying you have so much potential, right? Remember when they used to say, you got so much potential, darling, you know? And you look at your brothers, and they can just do it, right? You look at your sister, and she can just do it. And you have this terrible emptiness. And you read the doctor's opinion, and he says, a part of our disease separates us and differentiates us like a distinct entity, and you start to wonder why you felt separate, not a place, was because you were separate and out of place. Southern California, they love to say, feelings aren't facts. That's great to tell somebody new when you want to divert them from some truth and, and give them something to make them feel better for a little while, put a little Band-Aid on it, tell them feelings aren't facts. But sometimes 
the reason you're feeling a certain way is because you are. It's because you are. And that's how I felt. And um, when I used to look at the craving, I used to go to all these times where there was drama. And I would tell you all about the day of my dad's funeral and my mother begs me not to drink. They brought me from a little white room in a psychiatric ward where my dad had died in the intensive care unit in the same hospital that I was locked up in in the psych ward. And I, I told her I wouldn't drink, and I went across the street to say hello to a friend, and he asked me, did I want to have a beer? And I said, I'll have two just to calm down. And somewhere between the second one and the 20th one, I lost the power of choice over how much I was going to drink. We're going to look at choice at each part of the work up to the 10th step where you'll see there's no choice to drink. But now we're looking at is the only question you need to answer here as far as choice is, do you have a choice over how much you're going to drink once you put some alcohol in your body? Because if you have a choice over alcohol once you put it in your body, you're not powerless. You can't be like powerless and have a choice. That's an oxymoron. They don't go together. It's like military intelligence, right? Right? It's like jumbo shrimp, right? It's like a democratic convention. There is no such things, right? World Series, right? No. It's the U.S. Championship. They tell you all kinds of things that don't make any sense. I'm powerless over alcohol, and today I have a choice. Or how about this one? Relapse prevention. Right? I'm here. Be I am here today because I cannot prevent my next relapse. Right? That's why I need to go on past step one. Right? Relapse prevention. If you can prevent your next relapse, you're not alcoholic. Right? Our group was asked to do a meeting at Cedar Sinai Treatment Center for a while. And me and my friend Brian, remember I told you about Brian? Brian doesn't have any investment in anybody in AA liking him. He's not a speaker. He doesn't care if he ever speaks. He's just good with one-on-one -on -one in his living room with alcoholics. And he's great at my home group because he'll ask anybody anything. So me and Brian start to do this meeting once a week on the first three steps over and over and over every 30 days for this treatment center. One day we walk in, and I've been gone for two weeks. Brian said that it went really well. He's just been going over the same stuff. The mistake I made was I left them alone with Brian for two weeks, right? And we come back, and the patient leader, that's always funny, right? Probably several of us overachieved, anal retentive, obsessive, compulsive overachievers were probably, there's probably, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but the, there's probably several ex-patient leaders in the room, right? It just means the thickest one of the whole bunch, right? That's like when I used to think speakers were the well ones, right, until I became what I thought was a speaker. I had to get free of that, too. I'm not a speaker, right? I thought speakers were the well ones. Well, speakers aren't the well ones. Speakers are the really sick ones that need a whole lot of attention from a whole lot of different people all over the country, right? So, so I come back, and Brian's been with these 30 people for two weeks. And uh, the patient leader, who happened to be an actor, they're very. We really kill them in Los Angeles, right? Because we make them into something in a program they came to and not be anything anymore. We just kill them. And the patient leader, who happens to be an actor, informs us 
you two will not be coming here anymore because they told us at the 7.30 meeting this morning that what you're sharing with us is not Alcoholics Anonymous. And all we've been sharing with them for months is what's in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they were informed at the 7.30 meeting by Joe Blow that this is not Alcoholics Anonymous and that we wouldn't be coming back any longer. I quietly picked up my book. I didn't say it was a it was a spiritual experience. I didn't have one thing to say to these people, and that for me is amazing. I didn't have to I didn't have to hammer the guy. I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to scare him. I didn't have to do anything. I quietly picked up my book and my notebook and I folded it up, and we left. Because see, right after our meeting, they used to have a meeting on relapse prevention of what they could do to prevent their next relapse, and it didn't jive with what we were telling them. You can't tell them at 10 a.m. that you can't prevent your next relapse, and then at 11 a.m., some guy with a diploma and a degree who's charging $47,000 tells them you can prevent your next relapse. Who are you going to believe? Me? (laughs) I can't even keep myself sober, right? I failed at being a therapist. I can't charge money. My master's degree did absolutely nothing for my life but confuse me. You're going to listen to me, right? So I always used to go back to these times to look at the craving when there was drama. And this guy says to me, maybe you were just a situational drinker. And now the situations in your life have have changed. Dad's not dying. Ain't no big funerals. There's not a lot of drama. Hadn't been fired. Right? Maybe I was just, maybe the craving only happened because something bad would happen like a funeral. So I go back to the times when there wasn't much happening at all. Guy says to me one time, he says, he tries to use the big book, the guy in West Hollywood, and he's going to say, you know, we realized, the people that wrote this book realized they only knew a little. And more has been revealed. Probably the most stupid, humble statement the authors of this book ever made, right? They knew more about alcoholism than anybody in the history of the world. And they make a statement like that. So somebody like this guy, this idiot in West Hollywood can say, These people only knew a little. More has been revealed. And we in the 90s have realized alcoholism is not a physical, mental, and spiritual disease that no human power can relieve. Alcoholism is a feeling disease based in shame. I wanted to ask him who we were, but I was afraid he was going to tell me, and I didn't really want to know once again. Because we, we, whenever they say we, it's always someone claiming to be a friend of Alcoholics Anonymous that's not. They really like Alcoholics Anonymous because they make a lot of bucks, but they're not friends of AA. If I could share one thing this weekend over and over and over on every step, it's this. Know who, be friends with your friends. Be friends with your friends, but know who your friends are. Or you'll find yourself blindsided by people that don't care about you. And he says, well, we in the 90s have realized it's a feeling disease based in shame. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Did you ever drink again when you really didn't want to, when you were full of shame and you were feeling really bad? He said, yeah, see, see? Well, the game was over. He was lost. He lost. He didn't even know it yet. I said, well, did you ever drink again when you really didn't want to, when you weren't feeling much at all? He said, yeah. I said, did you ever drink again when you really didn't want to, when you were feeling really great, king of the hill, top of the mountain, no shame, feeling really great? He said, yeah. I said, well, did you ever lose control over the amount you would drink when you were, weren't feeling anything? To just feel something. 
Remember some of you when, when rage was better than nothing? Remember when blame was no it was better than no attention at all? Even getting in trouble was a lot better than nothing. I said, did you ever drink? You ever lose control over the amount when you didn't want to, when uh, uh, to not feel anything? He said, yeah. I said, then what does alcohol care about how you feel, whether you drink again or not? And he had nowhere to go because see, this craving has nothing to do with emotion or circumstance. And if you can get free of that and quit blaming the physical craving on, well, she left me. Did you drink when she was there? Well, I felt bad. Did you drink when you felt good? Well, the team lost. Did you drink when the team won? Right. Well, it's rainy today. Did you drink when it was sunny? Right. On and on and on. They pull it out from under you, and you start to see the physical craving doesn't have anything to do with emotion or circumstance. How about halt? God, don't you love this? Let me ask you this. How many people ever got drunk on a full stomach? Everybody raise your hand. How many people ever got drunk when you weren't angry at anybody? How many people ever got drunk when you weren't lonely at all, had more people around you wished? How many people ever got drunk fully rested? Booze don't give a shit about halt. See, I heard a lady one time, I hate to say that it was a lady, but I heard a lady one time, Mark knows, we heard her this summer, and she, in, her, in, her, in, her, in her one-hour talk, she mentioned death twice, and both times were when an alcoholic left her. Now, I don't relate to that because I'm the kind of guy that when it gets a little too close and she leaves, I take a deep breath and I can finally start to live again, right? I don't die when they leave, right? Matter of fact, I don't even like alcoholics that much. I just have to be around them because I need them about life and death, right? She didn't mention dying as far as having anything to do with alcohol. She mentioned death when, when daddy and a husband, who were both alcoholic, left. I thought, that's not how I feel when they leave. Right. You know, or back, when they stay. <laughs> back to restless, irritable, and discontent. That's really the first good description of untreated alcoholism. <coughs> the other question to ask yourself is about ease and comfort. It's a great question. Do I believe that in recovery I must experience the sense of ease and comfort I got by drinking and if not, will I give in to the desire to drink again? Jason will like this. I, I was at a, um, well, too interesting story. I go to this men's stag at noon once in a while down on this uh, busy, it's called the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica, and they have a restaurant, and you, you have lunch with all these um, anal retentive, obsessive, compulsive, overachieving businessmen that all get together and they have lunch and they don't have a topic but everybody shares and they'll get on a tangent once in a while and one day the tangent was today I have a choice. So it got to me and I said I think there's a place that I've experienced when I do the work in the big book that the 10th step describes where there's about as much choice to drink as there was to not drink when I got here. It's in the 10-step promises that the problem will be removed. And it's a great place of freedom. And uh, today I don't have a choice. And afterwards, a man came up to me in a three-piece suit and a tie, and he hands me his card, and he says, uh, uh, give me a call, and I'll help you with that denial you're in, and maybe one day you'll see the truth like the rest of us. And I didn't say anything, and I didn't have to hammer him, and I didn't have to prove anything, and I had nothing to defend. And I thought on the way out of the meeting, I thought, you know, maybe we're both right. Maybe he does have a choice. 
maybe he's not alcoholic. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm not alcoholic. And maybe I have a choice. And it was very helpful, and I thanked him for helping me with my lesson that day. About two weeks later, I was there. I don't know what I said in the meeting. Uh, uh, a guy walks up to me afterwards. He said, I don't know what you said in the meeting, but I need to talk to you. I said, great, let's go outside. We go outside. He said, my guru told me to get out of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm not alcoholic, and it scared me to death. I said, how long are you sober? He said, seven years. I said, who's your guru? He said, Amaji, and it's this lady called Divine Mother from India, and he's met her four or five times. And the last time, I thought it was kind of strange, the last, because she's a very powerful woman called Divine Mother, and the last time that he sat with her, she leaned over and whispered in his ear, get out of AA. You're not alcoholic. And it scared him to death, and he's at the meeting. I said, well, let's talk about it. He starts telling me about his drinking, and it's like, well, one time he felt really bad, and he kind of wanted to kill himself, and he drank, and the guy told him to get to an AA meeting, and I'm not connected. I said, well, in all these years, have you ever met anybody that ever suggested the Marty Mann test? He says, well, what's that? I said, well, that's to consider, just to consider, two drinks a day for 30 days. No more, no less, to find out if you got this physical craving thing. He said, my God, there's no way I could do that. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's a normal reaction. That's the kind of reaction we look for in an alcoholic. See, because the Marty Man test doesn't scare my mom. My mom goes, sure, I could do that. And she giggles, right? This guy goes, this guy goes, there's no way I could do that. And I thought, wow, pretty cool. I said, why couldn't you do that? He goes, that would be way too much to drink every day. There's no way I could have two drinks a day. I said, your, your guru was absolutely right. I saw the guy a few months later. He's back at the men's stag, and his face is all red, and he's all embarrassed, and he's getting that phony attention that we give those people that doesn't mean a thing, and he's just sucking it up because he loves that. He says, man, I love the energy in this fellowship. And they're all patting him on the back, and they're telling him everything's great, and he says, I drank. And he's got everybody in the room convinced that he drank because he drank. And afterwards I said, well, well you know, were you and I wrong? Were we looking at the wrong thing? How was the, how was the drinking? Was it bad? You, mean, you know, you look pretty bad. Your face is red and everybody's feeling sorry for you. I said, what happened when you drank? He said, oh, I had a beer. I said, and? Right? <laughs> had a beer. Came back to AA. Terrible problem. Needs a lot of help. You know, when I when I first came to the program, this this got real easy to look at. Uh, I had brain damage and I had some kidney damage and liver damage and I looked like a bloated whale and just damn near everything I owns in a duffel bag. How do you touch this? You know, today, God's blessed me with 14 years. How did I touch this this year? I haven't had a drink of alcohol. I told you I started on step one, a new experience with step one on July 28th. So those of you who have been sober, you know, we got the woman with 35 years. How does she touch the physical craving at 35 years? What can you do with that? And you've got to touch this thing. How long can you go on with a first step as far as the physical craving based in memory? How long can you sit around and say, she's got to go back, well, 40 years ago when I used to drink, it was like 
And what do you got left? What do you got left to get to the craving from 40 years ago? Well, 14 years ago, when I was drinking, toward the end of my drinking, right? Or sometimes you'll hear people that refer to their first step. Well, last November, when I was in the first step, I began to see that, like, the first step is only true when you're in it, and the craving can only be touched based on memory. How are you going to experience the physical craving right now, right here, today, so that you can say, 35 years sober, I am absolutely convinced that if I was to take a drink, that physical craving would be worse. Now, the physical factor of our disease either progresses while we're not drinking or it doesn't. You've either heard those stories from those people who drank after long periods of time and really quick it was worse than it was when they quit or the physical part of the disease doesn't. And there must be, see, we're working with the, with the first step currently, for those of you that have been around for a while, and you don't have to just look back. How much can you see from 40 years ago or 20 years ago? I'm, I'm 14 years without a drink. I have not had the physical craving for alcohol in over 14 years. But the book says there must be no reservation or any lurking notion that someday you'll be immune to alcohol and you've got to look, before you move on to the mental obsession, you've got to look at the physical craving currently. I will share an experience in looking back. It was a gift I was given uh, at 11 years sobriety. Uh, you know, in health food stores now, there, there's this uh, all this stuff about, you know, bee pollen and all that. And uh, a lady friend of mine in Seattle <clears throat> sent me a, a little... little uh, vial of stuff and then I mean I'm a drunk I love this it said rocket fuel <laughs> so she sent me this you know it's to give you energy and stuff so me and me and another guy we were out at work and we were getting ready for this reunion and I just noticed on the front it said bee pollen and the direction said you know put 10 little drops under your tongue so I did about 20 <laughs> and he did about 20 and then we go out and we're doing a little physical labor setting up some chairs and I've been out there about 10-15 minutes and I'm telling you I, I, my, the top of my head down to my toes my body started tingling and I said to myself what the hell is this about and all of a sudden this memory began to come in of maybe what this is about and I turned to him and I said JD have you got anything going on in your body and he said yeah so I'm starting to tingle we ran back up to my office, and I, and I pull out this little bottle, and I look at it, and it said in there, 25% grain alcohol. Now, I hadn't had alcohol in my body in 11 years, and I took 20 little drops of a minute amount of alcohol, and my body lit up like a neon sign. See, that was a gift. You talk about touching, touching alcohol again. Infinitesimal little drops in my body, and it affected my entire body. But let's get back to this a minute. How do you touch this? You know, how does Jason touch it? How did I touch it this time? Because, again, it's a memory. And the way that I touch that for me is that I use meditation and I use prayer. And I ask God, show me where I'm at today. Let me have experience with this today, with this phenomenon called craving. Maybe I am like the man who's lost his legs, can never grow new ones. Maybe the only thing standing between me and death is this program and this power, this God. And then you can begin to have an experience, and then you can touch it. Right now, a good friend of ours celebrated 14 years, October the 7th. He's called me once a week, and the reason is he's doing some work with, with a man in this uh, group in Denver. And he's going, he's going crazy, and here's why. The guy is saying to him, 
I'm not interested in your drinking 14 years ago. What makes you think you can't go home and have a glass of wine with your wife tonight? And he's getting scared. He's getting scared. He will not look at where he is with it today. So he called me. He said, I, I, how do I do this? How, how can I touch this today, me and alcohol today? Because he was very, very young when he got sober. Now, I did a bunch of work with him. And he did a hell of a lot of drinking as a very, very young man. He's been sober 14 years. He's still relatively young. So how does he touch it? And you can use steps 10 and 11 to go back and touch that and sit with it. I told you before that this time through, God moved me through step one, and I had to sit with this for almost two weeks before I touched it, before I touched it. I started the set-aside prayer a few years ago with four different people that we were all going through the work together, and I woke up three days in a row wondering if I ever had this physical craving. And I had looked at it about ten other times, let alone the number of people I'd worked with, and I knew the set-aside prayer was working. And I've got to experience the truth about the physical craving. Because imagine if you're sitting in your living room working with somebody with some time, and they say they're absolutely convinced that the physical craving used to happen. Their drinking experience is filled with it. And you let them settle for that, and they leave your house, and you didn't ask the right question, and they leave with a major reservation that they don't think that craving would happen anymore. And you didn't catch it. If you go on the doc's opinion on page 28... Next to the last paragraph, all these and many others have one symptom in common. Can I start drinking without developing a phenomenon of craving? That's a question to sit with. It's great to keep the book in the we and never have to look at yourself. There comes a time you have to look at these questions for yourself. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy. And do I believe this allergy differentiates me and sets me apart as a distinct entity. I will tell you something that when I got out of the insane asylum in nine years sobriety, and I really, really got into this book, and I really began to destroy belief systems, I'll tell you one thing I got crystal clear on. If I'm sitting in a meeting with ten drunks, if I tried to do what eight of them did, I would either go insane, commit suicide, or pick up a drink again. I got damn clear of my truth about alcohol. And there's a line on page 34 that really addresses that. And I would encourage all of you, you better get to your truth. If you're a real alcoholic of the hopeless variety experientially, by God, you better be running with people who are just like you seeking this solution. I damn near died behind that. Meaning middle of the road, take it easy, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to make all the amends, work the steps one time. I'm not like a lot of people who can do that, and God bless them. I've had right inventory on it. I don't need to go around AA deciding who's alcoholic and who's not, but you better believe if I'm asking you for help or you're asking me for help, I'm going to know whether you're like me or not because our lives are on the line. If I'm asking you for help, I'm not going to go to somebody who has unfinished amends. I'm not going to go to somebody who hasn't had a spiritual awakening, who's not in a recovered state or doesn't believe you can recover. I'm not going to go to somebody who has a choice today who's chosen that kind of a God that would give you a choice over something you know is going to kill you. I'm going to go to somebody who does not sell this program short and has continued to go for a spiritual experience. See, this gets so important about setting me apart as a distinct entity. What do you think will take ultimately take some long-term sobriety out of the room? I'll tell you what happens is the ego begins to convince you that you're not a distinct entity. I am bodily and mentally different than a vast majority of this population. I will never be like those people. I, I just give you a little example about how I'm still mentally different. 
about a month or so ago is, is I'd spend an hour, hour and a half prayer meditation in the morning going for a run, and I'm just totally at peace and calm, and <clears throat> I'm going to go on out to work, and I pull up to a stoplight, and uh, there's a, a gravel truck that's full of gravel. And there's a big new Cadillac in front of me. It's two-lane, little blue-haired lady driving it. You know, you can barely see the top of their head, but it's bright blue. <clears throat> Speed limit in there is about 45 and 50. So, of course, the, the dump truck's got a full load, and the little blue hair is driving a new Cadillac, can barely see over the top. And after about a quarter of a mile, and I'm still going 25 miles an hour, and I keep in mind I'm living in a contemplative state, experiencing God, this thought comes to my mind. If I had that dump truck, I'd run that bitch over. <laughs> I will never be like other people. I must stay very, very clear on this from now until the day I die. I need to see you all laugh. See, I could tell that in another room, and they'd just look at me like I'm a horrible human being. The reason you're laughing is you have the same kind of thoughts, right? I've often said if we could take the thoughts of drunks for 15 seconds in an AA meeting, they'd lock our asses up forever, right? But I need to stay clear about who I am. Again, it's step one stuff, right? I'm an alcoholic, see? Let's look at the paragraph on page XXV. Did you look at that moral psychology? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Here's a paragraph. As, as many times as I've gone through this book, myself and with others, here's a paragraph that if I don't understand two words, it makes no sense. But once I understood two words in this paragraph, I understood what he was saying. And the, and the, the paragraph starts off, We Doctors. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology is of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. What in the world is he talking about? <laughs> I don't have a clue. But when somebody said to me that moral psychology was a doctor's way of saying spiritual experience and the powers of good is the doctor's way of saying the power of God and every time they say our, O-U-R, I should say the word doctor. Now listen to how simple this paragraph is. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of a spiritual experience is of urgent importance to alcoholics. But the application of a spiritual experience presents difficulties beyond a doctor's conception. What with doctors' ultra-modern standards, doctors' scientific approach to everything, doctors are perhaps not well equipped to apply the power of God that lies outside of their synthetic knowledge. Bingo. They know what we need and they can't, they can't supply it. Isn't it interesting? Silkworth came to the same admission that Carl Jung came to, that Terry Tebolt came to. One knew about the body, one knew about the mind, one knew about the spirit, and all three of them had a first step in their own way that they couldn't make the very thing we need to save us happen. And it sums that up on, on page 28. See, that's the first step for a non-alcoholic. <laughs> the first step for a non-alcoholic is they can't help the alcoholic. That should be with the, your first step with everybody you ever work with. If you're sitting in your living room with people that you can help, they don't need AA because you're a human power. So in your 12-step work, quit looking for people you can help. Look for people that you can't help 
and maybe you'll take them to what can. If you keep finding people that you can help, they will continue to become dependent on you. Page 28, next to the last paragraph, talks about it. This allergy has never been by any treatment of which we're familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So the question is, do I believe that I can do that on my own, just not drink? The book goes on to say what Joe's just talking about. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. So we have this doctor that spent all this time and had all this experience working with all these drunks, and he basically looked at us and he told he told us what's wrong with us, and then he said, but I'm sorry, I can't help you. Have a good day. All right. Isn't that kind of how the first step felt for some of you the first time you saw it? You've been looking all over the world for a solution to this problem. You've lived with a question your whole life, what's wrong with me? And finally, you come somewhere and this guy says, we know what's wrong with you. Blah, 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 blah. And your, and your spirits rise and you feel great because for the first time in your life you found out what's wrong with you. And then he says, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Only Alkies would understand a terrible, wonderful experience. Terribly wonderful. Let's go on to Bill's story. Use Bill's story as a tool. Joe's talked about that. Highlight three things in there, the first eight pages. When did I think like Bill? When did I drink like Bill? And when did I feel like Bill? And try to keep it with your focus, that you're focused on why are you physically powerless once you take a drink and the questions you've begun to answer from the doctor's opinion? Take that perception into Bill's story as far as the first eight pages to move into the middle of your drunk log to see the truth about the physical craving. And, you know, he ends, he ends with this about page eight. No words can tell the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stressed around me in all directions. I'd met my match. I'd been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. See, I've experienced with slavery. I came, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a slave to alcohol. It was my master. You know, I tell people this. Well, I've got a new one now. For those of you who don't want to finish amends, I've got a new phrase for you. It's called dead man walking. If you're a real alcoholic, don't want to see God, dead man walking. But the other piece is this, I tell people. Oh, and the date of your ex execution keeps getting put off a little longer and a little longer or a little shorter. And you think you know when the date would be. Right? But I want you to think about this because it's one of these one interesting thoughts that came into my mind one day. Is you know, the truth is this when I was drinking, that I literally had a throne in my house. And on that throne was my drug of no choice alcohol. And every morning I got up and I bowed to it and I worshipped it. And I said, you take me anywhere you want. I'll do whatever you want. You're more important to me than the love I have for any human being. You're more important to me than any career, than any wife I've ever had, than any dream I've ever had. You do with me as you want. And I worshipped alcohol. And I strongly suspect you did too. I had to get to the truth about me and alcohol. And what the hell is acceptable about that? There's nothing acceptable about that. Stealing emotional security from people who love me for year after year after year. What the hell is acceptable about that? You see? 
I had to get real clear on what the hell I was a slave to and what I worshipped. You see, when something so dictates your life that it comes before everything else, you are worshipping that, aren't you? Well, I've seen the truth too many times in step one about me and alcohol. I don't ever want to worship at that shrine again. I don't ever want to worship at that shrine where I put that ahead of everything in my entire life. Ahead of God, ahead of a mother, ahead of a father and brothers and wives and career and dreams and everything else. By God, that's how powerful alcohol is in my life. And somebody says, I'm having trouble coming to believe in a power greater than myself. And you've been dragged around by a power greater than yourself for 15, 20 years. They're not having trouble coming to believe in a power greater than themselves. They're having trouble coming to believe they're powerless over alcohol. Next time you talk to someone who thinks they're having trouble with step two, they're not having trouble with step two. Some of us might need to get free of some old God stuff and punishing God, but that work doesn't happen in the second step. The first step squeezes all that out. Just go back to the first step. We're going to find by the end of the weekend that any step you're on, if you're clear how to do it, you know, like who the amends are to or how to write the inventory. If you're clear on the mechanics and you think you're having trouble with that step, it's never that step you're having trouble with. The first step. First step reservations in the middle of unfinished amends. First step reservations in the middle of an inventory that has nothing to do with you drinking again. It always comes back to step one. Why do they take 60, 64 out of 164 pages? 64 out of 164 pages just to get across the first step. I've seen women take the principle for Bill's story. The principle is this. Put aside the differences. Look for the similarities. You're not the same color. Never been to war. Never been married. You're not a stockbroker. Welcome to the club. Neither was I, right? I'm not as old as Bill was. I've never been a stockbroker. I've never been married. I've never been to war. Put aside the differences and look for the similarities. And I have seen women, another race, another age, not even the same sex, mark three-fourths of Bill's drunk log. The preamble isn't my mistake when it says we share, Bill shared his experience, strength, and hope so that you and I could look at common problem, not our common differences. I've spent my whole life looking at the things that separate me from you. And for the first time, let's look at the things that join us. And I'll tell you, you will not find what joins us in the drama or lack of drama. You will not find what joins us in how we felt, because we all felt different at any given moment. You will find what joins us in the physical craving so far. That's all that joins us. I went to treatment ten times. You never went to treatment. I'm white. You're black. I'm a woman. I'm a man. You're a woman. Right? <laughs> <Or> whatever. <laughs> so, so far, the only thing that joins us doesn't have anything to do with race, creed, color, sex, age, how much, how long. It has to do with one little point that you're going to start to see joins us in a way beyond any of those other things that separate us. Matter of fact, the things that join us are going to bring us closer together than the things that separate us. And so far, the one thing we need to see that joins us is a physical craving. 
and you can go right into the middle of your drunkalogue by using the first eight pages in Bill's story. The last <clears throat> remaining portion of Bill's story is where you're going to get a chance to look at the things that you have resistance to. Turn to page 12, if you would. Bill talks about, I was convinced God is concerned with me, with us humans, when I want him enough. It's an interesting sentence to do some work. I, You've heard me say several times already about there's a hell of a difference between your belief system and the actions that you take. So maybe a question to ask yourself, if we went around the room and we asked you all how many hours a day you devoted to drinking we would probably get an interesting response, but it probably the minimum would be two, and that person probably lying to, uh, to 10 to 12 to all day. So it's back to that question then. Well, let's see. Do I want God as much as I want alcohol? Now, it's one thing to say yes, but if you really want to know the truth of the answer to that, then ask yourself this question. Take a look at the last week, and how much action did you take wanting God? in relationship to when you wanted alcohol. And now he's going to go on. He's going to talk about some things. Humble willingness to have God with us. He comes. But soon the sense of God's presence was blotted out by worldly clamor within myself. And now he's going to go through and he's going to talk about the things that he had to do to recover from alcoholism. And this is a great place to find out where you're going to get some resistance. Some great things in here. Look at this. I'm going to place myself unreservedly under his care and direction. No reservations. To admit again for the first time that of yourself you're nothing and that without God you're lost. And to be honest, mark the things. Mark the things in 9 to 16 that you feel resistant to or unwilling to do that Bill did to recover. And use the things that you marked as a barometer to when you're done with step one. goes on to say, I, I ruthlessly faced my sins Sins means missing the mark. wonder what ruthlessly means. Became willing to have my newfound friend God take them away root and branch. Hasn't had a drink. He made a list of all the people he'd hurt or toward whom he felt resentment. Willing to approach these individuals admitting my wrong, never to be critical of them. Next sentence, I am to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. See, if you're sitting here with, with unfinished amends that you've been aware of for quite some time, then obviously you have some resistance about utmost of my ability. Test your thinking by the new God consciousness. Sit quietly when in doubt. He's talking about meditation, isn't he? If you're sitting in this room and you're not working with meditation, I can assure you you have some reservations and options. Your actions will tell you what your belief systems is. Your ego is going to lie to you. You're going to sit in here and, oh, I believe in God and he's the most important thing in my life. Blah, 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 blah. If, you're, if your actions indicate you're only spending five minutes in the morning in prayer, this bullshit of, oh, I pray to God in the shower, then at least just be honest with me. Mark, God isn't the most important thing in my life. I talk to him, fight, come at me from that place. But you see what your ego can do? Walk into meetings, God's the most important thing in my life. How much time do you give him today? Well, uh, can we talk about something else? See, I had to close the gap between what I thought I believed and what I really believed based on the action I was taking. If you don't close that gap, you don't know where the hell you are. If you don't know where you are, you can't be moved. 
that's when movement takes place, whether it's the first step or the tenth step. If I move into resentment, I can't get free of that resentment unless I admit that I'm in it. Then I can be moved past where I am. Hey, I've got some doubt about my first step. Well, that's where I am. Here I am. Here I am. I've located myself. The steps over and over and over, and each part of the first step will locate you. So you can be moved past where you are. Goes on to say, my friend promised when these things were done. D-O-N-E. Look up that word. When they're done, look at, look what happens. When they're done. D-O-N-E. Done. You mean done could actually mean, now let me get this right. <laughs> I would, I would enter like upon. Done, done. Not like done. Done, done. Really done. Yeah. Not really done. I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator. Wow, you mean every time I go through these steps, a new relationship, levels of consciousness with this power? I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems? Oh, come on. Come on, you jest, surely. Belief in the power of God, doesn't say Mark, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things where the essential requirements. Simple. It is simple, but not easy. Here's the price. You will pay a price. We've talked about this. You get to decide what price you want to pay. Look at this next sentence. Destruction of self-centeredness. Doesn't feel good. It says destruction. Look up that word sometimes. Self-centeredness. Must turn in all things to the Father of light. Wonder what he means by all things. What is that? What could that mean? No, just my alcohol. I'm still going to take care of relationships and money and job and career and and every area. And every area. Well, we'll get to that. Some great stuff in Bill's story. First eight pages to identify. I think it's a great. I think it's a great analogy for us to realize the man that brought this message to our founder didn't didn't ever get it. That Ebby never stayed sober. Ebby had a couple years toward the end. I think that's great for us. It probably wasn't really great for Ebby, but I think it was really great for us. Because <laughs> at the head of the whole thing, the guy that carried the message to Bill Wilson, we can't hold up there as some kind of a false worship figure. Didn't get it. Didn't get it. Going to chapter 2, there is a solution. One of the reasons you do the exercise in Bill's story, it says, We of AA know thousands of men and women are once as hopeless as Bill. So was I as hopeless as Bill experientially? Did I think like Bill? Did I drink like Bill? Did I feel like Bill? Now, again, we're looking at one thing. It's a great exercise. Joe talked about first eight pages you read and look at it strictly from drinking. Did I drink like Bill? Was I as hopeless as Bill once I took a drink? And then as we get into the mental obsession, you go back through and do it again. Was I? Did I think like Bill? Did my mind keep taking me back to a drink? And then when we go look at the spiritual malady, did I feel like Bill? Can we go back one page to the the, to 16 that you're looking at right there in front of you? And I think there's a great description here of somebody who could be like uh, in amends or experiencing some power and freedom or in 10 and 11.